Welcome to The Long Play, Portland Monthly's podcast featuring candid conversations with the city's most interesting thinkers, makers, and characters. I'm Editor-in-Chief Zach Dundas, and in this episode, I'll interview the two candidates in Portland's contested city council race, Chloe Udaly. I stand to be the only small business owner, the only renter, the only East Side resident, and only the eighth woman to ever serve on Portland City Council. And Steve Novick. You've heard the old phrase, think globally, act locally. Being in this job puts me in a position to do that. The race for one of five positions on Portland City Council features Novick, an incumbent who's a former environmental lawyer and a longtime liberal policy wonk, and a challenger in the form of Chloe Udaly, the owner of the indie bookstore Reading Frenzy and a housing activist who came out of the May primary as a surprise challenger for the seat. Now, if you've had your political attention distracted this fall by a certain gigantic orange being on the national stage, the thing to know is that this election is a quintessentially Portland battle, a race between two smart, principled, and progressive candidates at a moment when the city is rapidly changing. The debates between Novick and Udaly center on housing, transportation, and other nuts and bolts issues of how the city works. Over the course of the episode, we'll be hearing from both of them in alternating segments. First up, Commissioner Steve Novick. Steve, welcome to The Long Play, Portland Monthly's podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us um, here in palatial studio Pomo. Um, Steve, I first wrote about you, I think, more than a decade ago when you came virtually out of nowhere to challenge then U.S. Senator Gordon Smith. Um, You ended up losing in the Democratic primary to our current U.S. Senator, Jeff Merkley. Our fantastic U.S. Senator, Jeff Merkley. That's right, that's right. but uh, you gave him a, uh, a very vigorous progressive challenger in that race. And I think uh, the consensus at the end of that race was that you did a lot to hone him as a candidate. And then, but you could argue even as a senator, as he went on to become. Now you're on Portland City Council. I was wondering if you could just sort of tell me a little bit about what you think of as the core the core details about yourself or the threads that connect the Steve Novick of today to that outsider U.S. Senate candidate of 10 years ago, and even further back into your career? Well, the reason I was able to mount a reasonable candidacy for the U.S. Senate in 2008 is that I had been working hard in progressive causes in Oregon for years before that. In particular, I played a role in a variety of fights against right-wing, anti-labor, anti-public services ballot measures promoted by Bill Sizemore. Uh, So... I had a lot of folks who I knew in the progressive movement from those battles, and that's, I mean, the same ethic that I take to my work in the city council, standing up for working people, um, fighting for adequate public services. You are one of five city council members. Um, Within that group, what do you think of, what do you think of as the characteristics or priorities that you bring that, that your four colleagues don't or or uh, the facets that you add to council? Well, one thing that I bring to council, and I do share this with Mayor Hales and in particular and also Commissioner Saltzman, not that the not that Commissioner Fish and Commissioner Fritz are unmindful of it, but I see the job as an opportunity to, as they say, think globally and act locally. And the biggest global challenge we face, of course, is climate disruption. I prefer to call it climate disruption because I think that's sort of more accurate than change or global warming. And we in Portland can do our part to address climate disruption 
by building a transportation system that makes it easier for people to bike, walk, and take transit rather than drive, and I focused on that, and having land use patterns which encourage the kind of compact development which makes it easy for people to bike, walk, and take transit. So that's a real focus of mine. It so happens that what we need to do to reduce our carbon emissions is also what we need to do to alleviate our housing crisis. Um, housing prices are going up as a matter of supply and demand. A lot of people want to move here, including a lot of higher income people. And we don't have enough housing supply to accommodate that without spectacular price increases. If we allow for some more housing to be built, then the price increases will be alleviated. And if we have more compact development, then we will also reduce our carbon emissions. That's an interesting link that I don't think I've ever heard anyone draw so specifically between climate and the current housing I don't know, crisis, if you want to put it that way. Certainly gentrification and the changes in the city are on most Portlanders' minds. What are you hearing on the campaign trail right now that's specific to that issue, housing prices, neighborhood and community change, and the transformation of the city in general? Well, it's actually been really interesting that some of the housing advocates are focused on some of the issues that also relate to climate change. Um, Folks from the uh, Portland uh, Tenants United came to a hearing, we were discussing the possibility of requiring more parking to be built with new development in Northwest. And they were saying, if you require more parking to be built, then that raises the price of housing and that's bad for housing affordability. Of course, also, if you require more parking to be built, then you are continuing to build society around the car and making it harder for us to reduce our carbon emissions. Now. We do hear from a lot of people who say they don't want anything more built in their neighborhoods because they like their neighborhoods just the way they are. And the response I give to that is your neighborhood is changing socially because of rising prices. If we allow nothing more to be built, then we'll become like Vancouver, B.C., where every house costs a million dollars because there's not enough supply. So your neighborhood might change a little by allowing more housing to be built, or it might change a lot by 20 years from now, only rich people can live in your neighborhood. All right, okay. Chloe Daly, candidate for Portland City Council. Welcome to The Long Play, Portland Monthly's podcast. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. You have, for many years, run the shop Reading Frenzy, which is now located on North Mississippi Avenue. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is a shop, for those who have not visited, that is a pillar of the local independent publishing community. It has, for many years, stocked Portland's leading collection of independent zines and other magazines. Can you tell me a little bit about how running that shop for so many years is informing what you're doing on the campaign trail right now? Yeah, I do see a direct link to my the impetus behind starting Reading Frenzy, some of the other projects that I've co-founded or spearheaded and running for city council. Um, I have, I think, a pretty creative, problem-solving oriented brain. And I was really interested in independent and alternative media in my youth. And I saw a real Um, gap or need in the community for an outlet for this work. I mean, keep in mind, this is the early 90s, pre-internet. I mean, technically not, but before the internet became a household word and began to be more widely available, 
it was also at a time where we were seeing rapid media uh, consolidation. There were maybe, I think, seven multinational media conglomerates that owned most of the media, so television, uh, print media, radio, and so on. And I felt that it was important to have an outlet for underheard and marginalized voices, and I and I found a lot of those voices in independent media. So Reading Frenzy has always been devoted to indie, small press, and self-published titles. We started out almost strictly comics and zines, but have definitely evolved over the years to include books, art, and other things and even titles that come out of big presses because at this age as kind of a senior bookseller I feel like I should be entitled to sell any book I want to Uh, but we do still have this mission of um, providing an outlet for uh, independently produced work so a few years later I um, co-founded the Independent Publishing Resource Center, also known as the IPRC. Again, it was a need that I identified myself in the community. People were coming in the store every day. They were so excited about what we were doing, and they um, hadn't heard of self-publishing or certainly hadn't seen titles uh, like the ones we were carrying. They wanted to know how to do it themselves. And so I would often find myself giving these impromptu one-on-one workshops uh, and at some point, I said to my friend Rebecca Gilbert, who was graduating from PNCA's graphic design program, you know, I need an office and you need a studio. Mm-hmm. How about we rent a space upstairs and throw all our combined kind of equipment, resources, materials together and start inviting our friends to come make zines? And she said, I was thinking the exact same thing. And that was it. That was the extent of the conversation. I, we leased an office upstairs from the shop, which was uh, on Ninth and Oak. And we started what would eventually become the IPRC. So flash forward a number of years, I'm the mom of a kid with a significant disability. He received special education services and he had been moved to three different schools in three years. And I was part of a large group of parents who um, had been formally and informally trained in disability advocacy, and we had a wonderful experience with early childhood services, which were very family-centered and child-centered. And once we were pushed off that cliff into into public schools, we found ourselves floundering and and really getting not not getting our kids needs met and so that's when I decided that we needed to start a district-wide special education PTA because the district was refusing to give us a real home base and we needed to create one for ourselves because when you're dealing with extraordinary challenges of raising a kid with a disability there's a there's a lot more to learn and know Um, and now you know again jumping forward several years I I've been a renter for my whole adult life I've gone from living you know having a good and fulfilling and 
fairly, you know, reasonably comfortable life on a mid- modest income to really st- struggling to pay the rent um, due to rent increases over the last handful of years. And I started an online group to talk about that. It snowballed into um, a forum with almost 2,500 members coming from a you know real variety of backgrounds and experiences and perspectives. And it's within that group that people started encouraging me to run. So, Steve, um, you have characterized yourself, at least in my hearing on the, during this campaign, as having been somewhat impatient when you first came to council. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that a little bit, because I know that, that um, one of the things that has been said is that you had a hard time forging alliances, particularly when you first arrived. Particularly when... The mayor and I were pursuing transportation funding in 2014. Uh, I did not do a good job of assembling a coalition, reaching out to all the people who needed to understand what we were doing. Uh, I thought that since 27 other cities had adopted some sort of a street utility fee, and since we did polling that showed that there wasn't any other option that seemed more popular, that we should just be able to get people to accept that we need something like a street utility fee, and why shouldn't everybody get on board? And I did get rather impatient and irritable in that process, and it did not go very well. And I realized that you need a lot of patience in this job and you need to recognize that a lot of folks aren't thinking about these issues all the time. And it's not that they won't support you when you explain what you're trying to do and help you come to a resolution, but they need to be engaged. And so we struggled to adopt a street fee in 2014 and we failed. And then in the spring of 2015, I realized we still need to do something to fix the streets. And there's a lot of folks that recognize we want to do something and they haven't agreed on a solution, but maybe if we work together, we can get get to an agreement. And one option that we hadn't really explored was passing a local gas tax, because I thought that I knew from years of watching politics that gas taxes are always really unpopular. We knew the gas dealers would oppose us. And usually it's hard to pass any kind of tax increase anywhere when there's strong opposition. But I saw some polling nationally that showed that People in Iowa and California were sort of open to the idea of an increase in a gas tax. So I thought maybe the landscape has changed since like 1993, the last time Congress passed a gas tax increase. So I started going to the Portland Business Alliance and individual business leaders, asking them if they could support a gas tax increase. I went to traffic safety advocates, advocates for low-income communities, to labor, to environmentalists, and asked them if they could support a gas tax increase. And... A lot of those activist groups would have preferred a more progressive funding mechanism, but ultimately they concluded this was our best option. And we also did shuttle diplomacy on the question of how exactly the money would be spent. The business community, by and large, wanted the vast majority of the money to be spent simply on street repairs. The advocacy community, by and large, thought that at least half the money should go to traffic safety measures to make it easier for people to bike and walk and take transit in parts of the city, particularly East Portland, where the streets are not as safe as they are in inner East Portland. Uh, And we went to a lot of back and forth, and ultimately I got a bunch of the players in the same room, and ultimately the business folks came to understand that we needed a major investment in safety. And the advocacy groups were willing to accept that slightly more than half of the money could go to street repairs. And they all agreed to support this gas tax. So we put that on the ballot in May and over the opposition of the gas dealers, we won. 
And that was extremely satisfying. And again, it taught me patience and a recognition that with patience and with the willingness to go back and forth between groups that agree in the ultimate goal, but not on the details, you should be able to get to some resolution. Chloe? What were um, the specific sort of precipitating factors that led you into this particular race? I mean, you jumped into this primary against Steve Novick, who's an incumbent city council member. They are very rarely defeated. Um, and, uh, and traditionally, uh, those races are not particularly competitive. Um, you have, in the course of the campaign, um, come out second in the primary, in a primary that uh, Novick failed to get 50% in, and thus we are now in a runoff situation. Let, let, tell me a little bit about what the sort of few dominoes that fell that brought you into this race, what they were specifically. Well, I have to confess, I hadn't considered running for office since I was vice president of my freshman high school class. Um, I was pretty happy being a bookseller and at the time doing, you know, doing okay. We had just relocated to Mississippi and were getting reestablished. Um, but I was really feeling the squeeze of this rising rent situation. Um, and like I mentioned, people within that housing group that I started start, were encouraging me to run. And I just thought, well, that's preposterous. Why, you know, why would you, why would you be looking to me for that? Certainly there are other people in the community talking about the same issues who have the right kind of background or the right kind of experience um, to serve in public office. And then I had a couple conversations with friends who have um, a lot of experience working in City Hall. One of them is Marshall Runkle, who is my campaign manager now. He were, he started out in Gretchen Kafori's office, who's one of my personal local political heroes. And he worked under Eric Sten uh, for, I believe, most of Eric's one and a half terms. That's how I met him. I brought an author down to City Hall to meet Eric, and I met Marshall, and we became pals. Um, Marshall and I made a pact that we would, you know, get our ducks in a row and let our kids get a little bit older. He has a 10-year-old, and my son is now 15. And that we would run in four years and try to pull off a people's take back of city council because we both remember a time when the council wasn't... Uh, wasn't dominated by political insiders and people with, you know, a lot of money, moneyed corporate interests behind them. And then I talked to another friend of mine about a month later, told him about our great plan, and he said, you got to run now. Um, you have an opportunity now because Steve is a relatively unpopular commissioner. And you don't know what the landscape will look like four years from now. It may not be possible for you to run. And I realized, wow, you are right, because I don't know if I'll be here in four years at the rate things are going. Um, and so it was, I mean, the whole thing pivoted on that one conversation where I realized I can, I can try to, you know, groom myself into my own, you know, vision or version of what a candidate should be or look like uh, and risk 
risk being displaced from my own um, my own hometown, or I can just throw my hat in the ring now. So that's the lead up. Mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, there were three seats. One was a mayor, and I wasn't interested in running for mayor of Portland. I do think it would be best to have someone with uh, more experience than than I do in politics. And I didn't want to run against Amanda. I, I think Amanda's our most ethical member of our city council. She's also only the seventh woman to ever serve on city council. And what uh, the stats show is that the more women in elected office, the more progressive family-friendly policymaking we get, regardless of political affiliation. So um, it would have taken extraordinary circumstances for me to run against the only woman on council and that left Steve and I think Steve is an interesting intelligent talented person who is maybe not the best fit personality and temperament wise for a job that requires you to listen to and engage with and you know build coalitions and be willing to admit when you're wrong. And um, I also think Steve represents, although he does bring some unique qualities to council, he is one of four Ivy League educated affluent white men uh, sitting on our council who really largely represent a very small privileged group in our city. And we need more diversity up on that council to make sure uh, that that the broader community is better represented. Uh, you're in, on the campaign trail right now. Your opponent, Chloe Udaly, uh, is a, a first-time candidate uh, who uh, got through the primary. And it's a somewhat rare circumstance for there to be a competitive general election for Portland City Council. Um, how would you contrast yourself with your opponent in this race? Well, um, Chloe is a passionate advocate. Uh, the contrast is that I have a record to run on. And I think that after getting past that period of not being at my best, as I just said, um, I've been associated with some significant accomplishments. Uh, we were able to pass the fix our streets measure. So we're gonna be making investments in street repair and traffic safety. We were able to implement text to 911. I oversee the 911 bureau, and we were able to implement text to 911, which means that people who are hearing impaired or might be in a domestic violence situation where it's not safe to make a phone call can access emergency services. We switched our streetlight bulbs to LED bulbs, which saves money over the long haul and also saves energy and therefore reduces carbon emissions. Uh, we, as I said, were able to get more improved bus service on 122nd by making these safety investments, by committing to make these safety investments. I was able to implement a program within PBOT, the Bureau of Transportation, to offer discounted parking permit passes to low-wage workers who work late shifts downtown. The last time we increased downtown parking meter rates, we heard from 
folks like janitors who work downtown that they actually park and use the meters and that they start their shift at like four o'clock and two dollars an hour for the three hours the meters are going is a lot for them and we realize that the garages start to empty out around three and we could afford to offer discounted passes to folks in the, that situation so what I think is that what I need to do is get information out to people about what I've been able to do in the past couple of years. And to some extent, although Chloe's a formidable opponent, to some extent, I also realize that I'm running against myself and I might prove to be a formidable opponent. Really, I'm running against the version of myself that voters saw in 2014. So I have to convince them that I have changed my ways and I've gotten some stuff done and I hope that you'll replace the image that I projected in 2014 with a different image. What's been fun about it so far? The vast majority of it has been fun for me. I mean, after 22 years of peddling books, it's been very exciting for me to get to use my brain in brand new ways. I really crave that. Um, so the funnest things have really been getting to having these behind the scenes opportunities like we did a candidates immersion day at OHSU and and meetings in you know offices and buildings that I'd never have any reason to go into and especially just meeting people from all over the community who are doing really extraordinary work I it's been a life-changing experience and um, regardless of the outcome in November I know it has changed the course of my life. I'm very grateful for that, and I recommend it to everyone. <laughs> I'll pass, but thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Chloe, thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, final question, I think. What's fun about the job? Why do you want to keep it? Uh, what's fun about the job is... Being able to do things like I did the other night and go in front of a bunch of folks in East Portland who've been working really hard to improve the transportation infrastructure there, to get improved bus service on 122nd and say, you know what, There's a, we've already made some investments with the gas tax. We're going to be making significant investments in East Portland. We are going to implement the changes that you've been advocating for for years and years. And that's a great thing to be able to do. Um, and I really want to tip my hat to the transportation advocates in East Portland who have spent years identifying the highest priorities for traffic safety fixes in their neighborhoods and pushing those to the city and keeping them on the front burner. So to be in a position where I can deliver to people what they've been working for, help to deliver to people what they've been working for for years is very satisfying. All right. Well, Steve, thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.